Welcome to More Than Special with Jermaine Suford. Our program is of interest to parents, family members, and caregivers of children and adults with special needs. Whether it's an acquired delay or one from birth, we'll speak with experts to bring you answers, information, and compassion. Now, here's your host, Jermaine Suford. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all doing great today. I'm here today with Sarah, who's a licensed clinical social worker, and we're talking about mental health issues with uh, the teen population mostly, but children as well. And um, me as a licensed counselor, I have seen a lot of clinical um, experiences that are somewhat uncomfortable and difficult to to talk about openly. So I figured we could have Sarah here with us and we could bounce some thoughts off back and forth. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. Can you tell me um, how did you get into the field and what your experiences have been? Sure. Yeah. So I, when, you know, one of the things I talk about, about why I got into this field, I think there are lots of different reasons, but When I was a young adolescent, I really started struggling with my own mental health, Um, and it really sort of permeated every part of my life, school, friends, family, and while my family was incredibly committed and loving and tuned in, they just weren't quite sure what to do and how to talk about it and... um, how to support me in in the way that I really needed. Um, And, you know, certainly they did the best that with the tools that they had. But through that experience and through years of healing, it really became clear to me that there is a young population that really needs that empathetic, unconditional support. And that's sort of what drove me into this profession. Yeah, yeah. You probably found out that you weren't alone. Right. Even yeah. though you've probably felt alone. And that's exactly. Yeah. 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 There's um, it's great that your parents were capable to recognize something because mm-hmm. I think a lot of families don't even know. Like it's almost like, well, let's not talk about what we don't really know the words to, you know. And so uh, a lot of times kiddos get just like the silent treatment almost. Yeah. It can be really scary for parents to see something and and to not know what it is or to not know how to talk about it. And so sometimes I think we err on, or some of the families sometimes that I work with err on this belief that if we don't talk about it, that's better than right. bringing it to light, right? And we know that not to be true. Um, but like you said, it can just be a really difficult conversation to have. Yeah, and it, there's an assumption that parents aren't, going through their own mental health concerns, there's an assumption that they, you know, if, if a parent is going through a depression episode at the time and then they see their child resemble that, they may not be comfortable with their own self right. to recognize it in somebody else. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, tell me about your um, clinical experience. Uh, yeah. So practice. Yeah, so I've been a clinical social worker for about 12 years um, and have worked in a variety of settings. Most recently now, I have um, a private practice in Denver um, where I serve children and families with, you know, sort of a range of behavioral health problems, challenges, life transitions, 
Um, and prior to my private practice, I worked in the nonprofit industry and really supporting children and families that were experiencing or had experienced some pretty significant trauma. Um, and so through that work, I really started getting clear about what different types of modalities are most effective, what is my theoretical orientation, and where I really landed is um, uh, this notion of trauma-informed care, which I was trained on, I don't know, 10 years ago, but really coming from a trauma lens and whether I know an individual has experienced trauma or not, really coming from that place of just unconditional regard and empathy for whatever trauma may enter the room. Um, and I'm also really committed to neuroscience and just really believe in the power of people understanding how their brain works and responds to their environment um, and how that impacts our mental health. So um, it's it's been fun. I love every minute of it. I also have spent... Um, the last 10 years providing clinical supervision to new graduates out of their um, social work or counseling programs, um, which is just one of my favorite things to do to, to guide and to supervise new clinicians. Yeah, yeah. And it helps get quality people in the field to have that mentor mentee relationship clinically. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So with, um, with where we are in the world today, I know that I had some difficulty in finding some accurate post-COVID stats with how that has additionally exacerbated the mental health concerns of the world. But there seems to be a lot of people on both sides that it's significantly worse. And it's, um, you know, we can guess that with a cultural trauma like we're going through that we likely you're going to have some exacerbation to existing mental health um, and new new uh -huh. diagnostics of, of, you know, dealing with pandemics. But before we had those stats, we have definitely um, the statistic of that, that suicide is the leading cause of death for teens in Colorado. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. For 10 to 24 year olds, it's the leading cause of death in our state. Wow. Isn't that it's, just, whew, I, it's yeah, unbelievable. It is. It is. And it's, it's been sort of an interesting journey that I've been on working um, in schools and seeing the impact of, um, y you know, a death by suicide by a young person impacts so many different parts of our lives, the community, the school environment, obviously the individuals that are affected by it. Um, but it really is sort of an untreated problem that we have in our state, but also nationally. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for adolescents in our country. Um, and it, it's really something I think, again, when we are talking about, do we talk about it or not? I have a concern with my child or with a friend of mine, do I actually say the word suicide or thinking about hurting yourself? And I think there is this fear about doing that, but we do know that um, talking about it doesn't lead someone to do it. Um, and so I think it's so important just to continue to have the conversation and to know the statistics, right? That we know 
this is such a huge problem. I think it's important for us to really keep that in mind. Yeah. I guess, can you go into what you think some of the um, reasons why that even is a statistic that's a reality? Like what's going on with our society that, that, that there's so much depression, anxiety, untreated, you know, concerns with our youth. Yeah, I get asked this question a lot, and I wish there was a clear answer, right? I, I wish we knew. I think if we knew, it wouldn't be such a huge problem, but I truly believe, you know, there's this statistic out there, there's this research out there that says one of the most significant protective factors a youth can have is to have at least one trusted adult in their lives that they can talk to. Um and I think for whatever reason, and I, I don't blame it on social media, I, I, I think there's just a larger context of where we've gone as a culture that has created a sense of isolation um, in our young people and, and adults. You know, I think we've, pre-COVID, I think there's, you know, this, we're not as connected to our community as we have been in the past. And I really think, um, having that human connection and that trusted adult is such a big protective factor. We know that depression and anxiety are on the rise um, among young people. And, you know, I really think it goes back to there is an, 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 a real big increase in um, sort of what teens are required to perform academically, extracurriculars, those expectations and standards really from what I've heard anecdotally from those that I work with have just increased over time. Mm -hmm. And those pressures become um, at times insurmountable and feel so huge. And then when you're isolated and don't have someone to talk to, it can feel like an impossible situation. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed um, somebody from big brothers, big sisters. And it was a discussion about even, even if it's a work relationship, mentor, mentee, or it's a neighbor, or it's um, a structured relationship with somebody who's trained to be a big brother. Um, He was, he spoke a bit about that being such an improvement in outcomes for kids, Mm -hmm. just having a mentor, having somebody who's safe, a good role model who isn't necessarily a parent. Um, parents have a lot on their plate and they can't be necessarily the friend as well, especially if there's a single parent household or, you know, multiple kids in a family where they don't maybe get that one-to-one relationship as much as their development might require so that they can have a, you know, great mental health status. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and with with having somebody who's um, dedicating some time and energy to a kiddo and devoting them, uh, you know, that space to bring up things that are maybe uncomfortable to talk to a parent about, it really is a major improver in the outcomes for kiddos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just being able to talk, the uncomfortableness, but... Um, you know, like in schools, if there's a teacher who's willing to be open and listen 
or a counselor or in those structured environments, it just makes a world of difference. Absolutely. Yep. Can yeah. you tell me um, a little bit though about you, you were talking about trauma-informed care. What does that look like? What is like, is there a structured training that you go through to become trauma-informed or is it like something that you just kind of are as like a persona? What does that mean? Yeah. So trauma-informed care came out of the um, behavioral health system and sort of um, took place when I was in a non, well, sort of a um, client serving organization. It was really about creating a culture that is trauma informed. And so, yes, there, you know, I was trained by SAMHSA, but what that really means is um, there are some basic tenets of trauma informed care. Um, and one is client choice, you know, making sure that when a client walks in the door, they are in control. And one of the things we know about people that have experienced trauma is the word no or the feeling of being told no can be re-traumatizing. And because they sort of have had, depending on the type of trauma that they've had, they've sort of had that, especially if they're in institutions or agencies, they get told no a lot. And so giving them that sense of control and that sort of sense of self-efficacy is really important. Um, again, it's really about not re-traumatizing. So there may be things that we do that we're not even aware of that could be re-traumatizing. We think about this a lot in schools. So if you have discipline practices that remove a child from the classroom when there's a perceived behavioral problem, um, that can be re-traumatizing to a youth who has experienced trauma because the message is, you need to, you're being taken away. You're not good enough. You're not okay to be here. And so there's sort of this whole idea of taking what we know about trauma-informed care and putting it into practice, into trauma-informed practices in schools where the lens is, I don't know which of my students has experienced trauma, but I'm coming with this empathetic regard for every single student first tenet of trauma-informed care or practices is building that relationship. And that relationship comes with time, trust, and listening. And it seems so basic, right? But I think we're often just so quick to to complete this assignment or to get somebody in housing, and we miss that fundamental piece of that relationship. Yeah, being present for somebody is priceless for the somebody yeah. And in your point about in a classroom, if um, if I remember right, there, um, the statistic was that two thirds of children have depression or anxiety and that 70 percent aren't receiving services mm-hmm. related to those diagnoses. And so if there's two thirds of a classroom and a teacher's focused on, you know, reducing the, the noise level and getting the assignment complete, it really could exacerbate for a kiddo that that the teacher may be totally unaware of that there's even a concern because maybe they're good at masking or, you know, it's, they can cope for the school day or something. And yeah, those, you have to assume almost that everyone has experienced some level of trauma. And so if you're trauma informed, I guess, so when I think of trauma informed my own self, I think of like those very simple things of 
assuming that the person that you're talking with is coming from a place where they have been unsafe in the past. Mm -hmm. And how can you make sure that your environment is safe and a place for them to grow? And some of those very simple things like not saying no, but maybe saying, let's hold on for just a second. Let's do that in a minute. Or instead of no, you are getting kicked out of this classroom because you're not good enough. Yeah. yeah, what are some what are some other stats that that um, explain how big of an issue this is? That yeah, out? so um, you know, one of the so we know depression um, and anxiety are increasing in young people, and like you said, seventy percent of those youth, so half of all uh, mental health conditions um, appear before the age of fourteen. So we know this is a childhood problem. But right. yet, as you were saying, 70% of those kids aren't getting the treatment that they need. What we do know is that when services are offered in schools, kids are two times more likely to access mental health, twice as likely to access mental health services when they are offered in the school rather than in a community setting. So schools can really be this optimal place for a lot of this work to take place. And even the prevention piece. Um, I think is really important that, you know, schools can do a lot. Now that said, I think we have to be careful about putting too much on teachers and schools because they can't do it alone. They weren't created to do that, nor should they do that. Um, And so I think it's a fine balance of equipping teachers and school staff with some fundamental knowledge about mental health, some skills and practical things that they can do in their classrooms um, but then making sure that they get the support that they need. Sure, yeah, because if they're surrounded by kids who are suffering from such high rates of, you know, how can you, if there's so many things you're juggling already and responsibility, you know, to teach, you can't also be an effective counselor for two-thirds of your classroom. Yeah, right. yeah, but knowing when to refer, when to um, seek support, yourself. Um, and that's, you know, like, like you were saying with, with isolation being such a contributor, now all the kiddos who are learning from home remotely, how can a teacher even acknowledge somebody in a Zoom call, you know, for um, a mental health concern? It, you know, it, there's no private times of like between classes and after school to chat with somebody We've yeah. lost a lot of those yeah. Um, yeah. opportunities to recognize yeah. concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we know that trauma is pervasive. We know that among our youth, we, you know, a quarter of um, children in the United States have experienced at least one traumatic experience. Um, and then I think the statistic is like 16% have experienced two or more traumatic experiences. So when you talk about coming from this place of assuming everyone has trauma, that's really important for us to do. And even more important now that we're being exposed to this societal trauma of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the disruption and the fear and the lack of control that that has caused for all of us alike, children and adults. And so I think as students, re-engage in their learning environments after the summer and as we've you know as we're getting into that now 
it will be really important for us all to sort of acknowledge that this has been trauma. Um, and this is exposure to prolonged stress, which has an impact on the brain. It has an impact on our functioning. And that's going to play out in every environment of a children's life. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Sorry, my audio is being really weird. But the, um, that we're going through it together, though, kind of seems like it might lead to support by that everyone is going through this. That almost kind of seems like at least it's not just me. It's not just me going through this pandemic. You're going through it, too. And so maybe we have some when you're having a, a bad day, I can be the supportive person that day and vice versa. We can support each other, whereas a lot of other types of trauma especially those like in a enclosed family unit or, you know, if, if only one person experiences something, it's hard for the neighbor to know what even happened mm-hmm. and to meet that person in that trauma informed way of assuming that they've experienced a trauma. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hopeful that with this being so big, that there'll be those resources and those assumptive you know, like I feel like when I go to the store, I just assume somebody's frustrated and right. scared and and I just meet everyone with grace, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's hard to do that if we weren't in a pandemic because I'm, I might be assuming that everyone's fine because I'm fine. Right. Right. <laughs> but now everybody's not fine. So it's kind of yeah. helpful in, in understanding how to meet somebody uh, coming from a different place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the idea that we can get better through this, but at the same time, that trauma is, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think a couple of things. One, I, we, there are so many, like you're saying, so many different things that people have been doing to get creative about establishing or reestablishing that connection. I think of the and, and they're really sort of collective strategies. So I think of the, in Colorado, when in, in March and April, we started howling at 8 p.m., right, for our frontline workers and also for those that we weren't able to be connected with physically. Um, and I, you know, I did this with my son when we were doing it more actively at 8 o'clock every night, and it was so wonderful to hear your neighbors doing that and for him to hear your neighbors doing that and us all to have this um, sort of solidarity in this experience. Um, And there have been a lot of stories of helping and healing that have emerged out of communities. Um, And so I think, yeah, keeping that in mind. And we also know that when you help others, we get joy from that experience too. So I think there can be this real reciprocal relationship that we bring to the pandemic. I I really did enjoy hearing the the howls from it was like, oh, is that, you know, two blocks away, three blocks, you know, it is so far away that people were participating in something that I've never even met them. Yeah. Um, but yet we're doing something together. And then hearing it on the news when they had, you know, other communities and how in in other countries they were singing and it's like wow we could all do you know our own um version of this but it really did bring people together and at the same time I was like I know they're home and they aren't howling what are they doing (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, they might just work nights and they were, you know, right. Uh, catching up on sleep or something, but it was, but it was interesting that the, we had this new concept and bringing all, all sorts of people together. I guess that's kind of like, if there's, if we aren't going to work in the same pattern of physically going into an office as much and children aren't going into a school setting as much, there's less contact with people. And so we kind of need to get those creative ways to still recognize that we're in this human condition together and, you know, be there for each other. I saw um, in one of the notes that there's a decrease in the number of people who are being reported to the, um, to one of our hotlines that we have in Colorado and the idea that maybe that youth are not being um, suggested to call for help because they aren't having those connections with professionals like school teachers and counselors. Do you think though that that could be a sign that actually families are spending more time together and that there's less mental health concerns or do you think it's a sign of less reaching out for assistance? I would love to say that I think it's uh, that it's people are supporting each other more. I I know that you know it's a, it's not a large percentage of our population, but they're um, you know having thirty percent reduction in calls says to me that you know those those kids just weren't exposed to their trusted adult right that was keeping mm-hmm. eyes on them that. Um, knew what was right and what was wrong and when to call and when not to call. So I think um, it was, you know, it's a concern. Um, And I, you know, I think that's sort of what, when I talk about collective trauma, I also think we need to be aware that there could be individual trauma as well. Um, And and I think it hasn't stopped. Yeah. Right. And this has put so much stress on parents too. Um, when you say grace, I think one of the things that is so important is for us to find grace for ourselves because we're not going to be our perfect self right now and certainly not our perfect parenting self. So <laughs> finding grace. Yeah, yeah. That is a good point that um, it's okay not to be perfect, even mm-hmm. especially now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I know some of the symptoms that we've um, brought up that behavioral things that happen with kids like isolation, but there's also if kids are regressing in school, that's probably happening right now, naturally Mm -hmm. Um, increases in fear, decreases in sleep consistency, appetite concerns, you know, maybe they're not eating as regularly. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's so many kind of precursors. So, when we come back from the break, what I hope that we can talk about is what are some of the things that parents can do? When do you refer somebody um, for more professional assistance? Um, maybe some of the resources that you know of that we can, um, you know, write down even in our phones or something like if, if we have a concern, what are some questions that you ask and how do you not embarrass somebody Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, and and I also, like, you know, Suicide Awareness Month that we're in, I don't want to be, like, only talking about the morbid, but on those positive things. What are those positive things that we can mm-hmm. focus on, not just as prevention of suicide, but, but as an increaser for mental health of right. our youth? 
Right. So, yeah, absolutely. So we'll come right back after breaks. Talk to you in a minute. Okay. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Every Saturday morning, listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety channel follow the voice america variety channel on twitter our hosts always have something to say and we know that you do too we tweet on today's hot topics and you're welcome to follow us speak up and join in at voice am variety that's at voice am variety the latest business information is made simple with the voice america business network The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. You're listening to More Than Special with Jermaine Suford. To connect with Jermaine, or if you have a question or comment about the show, send your email to jermaine at morethanspecial.org. That's G-E-R-M-A-I-N-E at morethanspecial.org. Now, back to the show. Hello, welcome back. We're here with Sarah, and today we're talking about mental health with our youth And um, we're going to be talking about some of the things that families can do or the trusted, you know, adult person who's in their life. um, If they have some concerns about a child's mental health, which I would argue that you should if two thirds of kiddos have a diagnosable condition of depression or anxiety, then you should probably be concerned about every child. But um, um, we were talking there at break that, that, people have been actually um, completing some online survey and screenings at a significantly higher rate now that the pandemic and um, awareness, maybe what do you, yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. I think it's an indication that people are paying attention to their mental health and are really feeling the impact of this. And what I think is really encouraging is that they're doing something about it right? They're going on to the website, they're taking these screenings at an alarming rate, um, really sort of participating in the process to say, how am I doing right now? Am I anxious? 
Um, so I think it's really sort of a good indication that mental health is at the forefront of many of our minds right now. You know, and I hate using the term silver lining, but I guess if there is going to be one, I, in, in the last decade, have not heard as much conversation about mental health as I have now. Um, you know, it's, there's so many industries that are really talking about mental health. Yeah, yeah. And so the screening that mhanational.org has some screenings online that can help you to identify where you are in in some of those um, anxiety, depression um, types of things. Yeah. Um, and I'll be sure to put that link in our notes for the show. Um, but I'm sure that there's just, you know, how Google can track and trend the mm-hmm. frequency with which terms are used, you know, and I'm sure that with COVID, there's like, how do you tell if you have a lack of smell or whatever? I'm sure that when we get through this, there's going to be um, an interesting, it's like, it's like a research study. We'll be able to look back and see how the Google searches have changed significantly. But you said that went up 300% that people were doing those screenings. Yeah. Wow. um, Over 300% of depression, an increase in the use of depression and anxiety screenings has gone up over 300% since the onset of the pandemic. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Which would lead you to think that there's more people who are suffering from those Mm -hmm. symptoms, but, and so it's a right, like you said, it's a silver lining that they're doing something about it instead of sitting at home and maybe continuing to isolate. Yeah. So what are some of the things if um, a parent or other trusted adult has a concern with a youth, what, what are some things that they can try to do, you know, without it going clinically, you know, pre 72 hour hold, right? Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. What are some of your ideas? Yeah. I think of it in terms of triaging, right? There's sort of different levels of, if you want to say intervention, but just things that parents can do um, that start, in my opinion, really start with talking, having regular conversations about the good, the bad, the tough, the funny, all just embracing an opportunity every single day to have a meaningful conversation with your child. So in my house, you know, I'm a therapist, so I over feeling everything for my poor kids. Um, We, we have a habit, we we have a routine at the dinner table of sharing one thing that um, made us happy, one thing that was made us sad, and I have younger kids. Um, And then one thing we're hopeful for. And whether those answers are substantive or not, I think it just creates an opportunity for conversations to happen if they need to down the line. So it's really like building that sense of if I'm concerned, if I'm a teenager and I am concerned about my mental health or I'm feeling off, can I go, do I feel safe enough going to my parents? And that starts early on, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then I also think um, it's important for parents to remember, especially with adolescents, that if your child is not talking to you, don't take it personally because it's developmentally appropriate. You know, so on the one hand, encourage conversations unconditionally, 
but don't be over alarmed if your teenager says it's all good. It's all good, you know, and, <laughs> and just continue unconditionally being there over and over again. Right. Right. Yeah. I think every teenager, it's like they all have to go through that phase of I'm fine. Leave me alone. And it's almost like the protective factor of maybe I just don't want to be vulnerable and talk about it right now. I'm still sorting it through in my own head. And, and it doesn't mean that they aren't sorting it through. Um, Yeah. It's not necessarily going to be getting worse or that there's even a thing. It might be embarrassing what they're going through and they don't want to talk to mom and dad. Yeah. 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 And it's important in those conversations when they do come up that as parents, it's so easy for us to want to fix and solve but that instantaneously will shut down the conversation, you know? And so really asking questions and coming from a place of curiosity instead of trying to solve the problem um, in the conversation. Then, you know, if you're concerned and that conversation is not yielding results that you think are going to keep your child safe, then that's when you start talking about getting professional help, finding a counselor, Um, or using your state's crisis line if you feel like your child is unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. And if this is also, I want to say, sometimes people don't have parents. You know, they might be living with their grandparents or they might be living in foster care. It may be that they don't have the, the typical life of mom, dad, you know, sibling, dog, and it may be that their parents, if the, if their parents are working three jobs or, you know, just trying to make it through. So having those meaningful conversations um, doesn't have to necessarily be with a biological parent. It can be with right. anyone and school folks, neighbors, and having those, um, having the ability, like I, I bet if, if I was to ask every teenager, is there somebody that you could go to and talk to something embarrassing about? I bet there's some that would say no. And I bet those are the more isolated ones. And I bet those are the ones who are more at risk. Mm -hmm. There's actually a question, a survey that um, we complete in Colorado um, at teens complete through their schools called the Healthy Kids Colorado Survey. And it asks a question about, is there someone in the school building that you feel trusted to talk to? Um, And there, you know, unfortunately, there are too many that don't feel like they have that trusted adult. Um, so even though there's so many people around, it, it probably is that people are overworked and people are trying to get the technical stuff done. And there, there's not that time for those conversations and just hanging out. Right. Right. That's such a good point too, is that hanging out piece, just being together, whoever, if you're, you know, in, in whatever environment that allows. So if you're in the classroom, create space to just be together and tell jokes and build that rapport. You know, caregivers can do that as well. One of the things I talk about is have recess, like mm. at home. There, you gotta incorporate, especially now, some silliness and some laughter <laughs> and some play. Um, you know, and and that builds that relationship as well. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. Let's start talking about your, you know, mental health day one. It can it can just be building that rapport to have the conversation when something comes up, you don't have to start with, let's talk about your trauma. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Keeping it positive, keeping it um, funny. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are, what are some other things that you can think of that um, we could relatively easily integrate into a, a family environment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, there are things that we can always do. And then there are things I think that are very specific to our situation now. Um, one of the, because so much is changing in all of our lives, I think one of the grounding techniques families can do is to sit down together and create a list of what isn't changing during this pandemic. What are those things that are remaining stable in my life? Um, and then I also think, you know, it's important that we create as, you know, so one of the things that all kids need is a sense of control in their environments. And so the more opportunities you can give um, a younger child or an adolescent some control and some self-efficacy. So for the younger children, it's like educating them about why we wash our hands and what they can do to have an impact on themselves and their, and their health. Um, And for older adolescents, it's like helping them understand facts about what's going on. And then again, why we social distance or why, you know, and a lot of this is transferable, I think, outside of the pandemic. Um, But really that, what things can you give your child to have some control over so that they feel like they are a person in their own right and that can be stabilizing for their mental health? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard people, you know, severe depression and, and suicide is not my specialty clinically at all, but I have heard people say that committing suicide or attempting is correlated with increasing the control in one's life. Mm. That if there is less controllable items for them to do, you know, for them to pick where they're going that Saturday afternoon or what color their bike is going to be or whatever the small thing is, if there's mm-hmm. like just repeated instances where they do not have a sense of control that suicide or attempting suicide is one of the biggest ways to have control. Mm-hmm. And that really seems so kind of saddening because I get to make choices all day long about what I eat, where I go, what I wear, and like those little things um, with the pandemic, it feels like we've lost a lot of control. And so I like your idea about talking about the things that haven't changed. And, you know, you could easily add to that. What are some of the things that I did pick? And some of them could be silly. You know, we could wear different colored socks and, and um, put our hair up in a really funny way and, you know, put some control into our lives in a way that we maybe couldn't have before Mm. that now we have this um, less control in some ways, but maybe more in others. Yeah. 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 I also think it's important for caregivers to remember that our behavior is communication to our children. You know, so we all know that what impacts us will impact our children. Right. But I think being, so aware right now of your level of anxiety and how your behavior it may be impacting the messages that your child gets like it's it's obvious as parents or as caregivers that when I'm anxious my child is going to be anxious 
And I think it's really important to think through now because there's almost this like underlying level of anxiety because we are sort of adjusting to this, to the, to the constraints of the pandemic. Um, but there, but so being careful and cautious about what you may be communicating through your behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Because we do have a tendency to, we understand our own anxiety a little bit through experience, but kids pick up on those kinds of things and they may also misinterpret that it may be, you know, that being anxious all the time is normal or um, the things that trigger us a little bit more now than they used to will continue to trigger us even after the pandemic when we, when we come out of this. And so kids may not understand that this is somewhat temporal Mm-hmm. Um, the increases in our anxieties, our depressions, our our lack of grace. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, are definitely with um, and with kids. If they have a behavior, a behavior, something that you can observe, then they are communicating something. They could be trying to shield themselves from a repeated exposure to a trauma and you may not get it. You might not recognize that their behavior is meaningful to them and they may not have the words to put into something and understanding we can misinterpret. And there's that, let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Let's be a safe place. Yeah. Let's just assume we are going to be wrong and open our ears and listen. Yeah. And if we do acknowledge the pandemic as sort of collective trauma, and we talked about some of those signs that you may see in your child, you know, sleep difficulties, appetite changes, regression emotionally or academically, but then there's also, there could be sort of an increase in um, behavioral problems or a sense of withdrawing and apathy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if we, see and and keep those in mind and then understand that if we think of this as collective trauma, those behaviors are really a result of the environment, not something the child is doing intentionally or that they're acting out. It's really just a result of our experience right now. Yeah, that's a really great consideration because kids will sometimes think if if I do something and it's bad, that means I am bad. And the, that relationship is not accurate, mm-hmm. but we yeah. unintentionally make that correlation that, you know, we are our own actions. Um, and it's not necessarily the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you were talking about also with schools, how having those increases in touch points of healthy adults and, people who have, um, I don't know, maybe some training, maybe not a lot, um, but to be able to recognize what are some things that schools can do? What are some things that people, um, I know in the, right now I'm assuming that what can people do when they go to school mm-hmm. that schools can do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting across the state of Colorado when I work with schools, it looks different in every community, how the return to school has happened. Um, and I, I, I just think that has been so interesting to observe. You've got schools that are full in session without masks. You've got schools that are full remote. You've got schools that are hybrid. I mean, it's, it looks so different. We're all 
just sort of trying to adjust and change with every minute and see what this looks like. Um, and so I think one of the things that we need to consider is the amount of stress that teachers have on them right now. They have their own anxiety, they have their own concerns. Then they're bearing the weight of all these children coming back that had five months alone, not, not that they were alone, but you know, disrupted yeah. environment. And so there are going to be some academic and social regression that they're gonna see. And these, I was leading some groups over the summer and um, one of the teachers shared with me, um, I'm not sleeping at night because I'm worried about that one student. I can't sleep. And so I think, you know, remembering that our teachers and school staff really love these kids. And so we need to do what we can do as parents, as families to support the schools um, send them love notes, you know, a, appreciate, appreciate them in creative ways. I think that will help them be able to be present, to help the school staff be present um, for more than just teaching. You know, I, I read something that said the priority of teachers right now is the social emotional health of students and not academics. And that's really hard to wrap our heads around, you know, that we're like going to school, but maybe we really just need to focus on our social and emotional health and not math. We may do math, but it's not necessarily the academic performance that we need to be paying attention to right now. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say that me as a counselor, I, I would hope that we always put our emotional health first because it impacts our, our life in such a bigger way than your score in math ever will. Your self-confidence, your ability to um, look at the world as a safe place, it, it changes your outcomes in so many other ways than the academics. Mm -hmm. um, and right. I absolutely agree with that. But at the same time, for, for people who are not in our clinical world, to think that teachers maybe were, you know, there's some people who probably don't want their the teachers to be in charge of any emotional anything with their kid, you know, not their place. Right. Um, but at the same time, they are healthy touch points for kids, and kids do have emotions in the school setting, and it has to be difficult for teachers who are going through their own family and personal everything. Right. Yeah. 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 My one of my favorite statistics that I share about social emotional learning in schools is that when social emotional when students receive social emotional learning, their academic achieve, achievement test scores improved by 13 to 17 percentile points. Wow. So it really speaks to the fact that children can't learn if they're not mentally healthy and vice versa. Right. If they're mentally healthy, they can really learn and thrive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so with the, there's an assumption here, right? Like, so we're doing all this pre stuff with families and having great conversations. When should a parent or a trusted person actually do a call or have a kid call? What is that line? If you could, and who do you call? Yeah, I, I mean, I, there are websites that can, 
that can show you the National um, Institute of Mental Health has sort of a list of all these warning signs that parents would want to watch out for. It's isolation, it's sleep, it's major disruptions um, in mood, real significant changes. So when you start to see a culmination of all of those sort of symptoms pop up or sustain themselves, and then it's impacting their ability to function in their environments, that's when you need to call. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if you're feeling like your child is safe, but needs some professional help, there are opportunities for you to call counselors and get counseling. There are websites out there like Psychology Today, where you can go find um, mental health professionals and get some information about them. And But then if your child is really demonstrating some warning signs, talking about death, fears about death, um, then it's time to call your crisis line or the National Suicide Hotline. Yeah. And I highly recommend for anyone just to find what those numbers are and put them on your phone. Just you don't know when it's going to be that somebody shares something really scary and uncomfortable and instead of you know shaking walking away shutting down the conversation if you and your phone literally have here's a number do you mind if I hit the dial button and we can talk to them together Mm -hmm. Um, you don't have to be the professional with the right questions there's really supportive and understanding people on the other side of the line and and there is there's some great opened Um, opportunities with telehealth. You can pretty much find a licensed counselor anywhere you are in the world. And some are free a lot of times um, for, for kiddos, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Telehealth has been obviously really expanded, but I think is such a benefit, especially to our rural communities. Um, And so I would encourage people to take advantage of telehealth and, you know, doing some, mental health work right now. Well, how can somebody uh, get a hold of you um, if they have any ongoing questions? Um, Is there an email address that you have, a website maybe? Yeah, my um, email address is Sarah with an H at familiesfindinghope.com. And my website is familiesfindinghope.com. That's great. I love the name that's really supportive and hits right to the what families need, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time talking about a difficult topic that's slightly morbid at times. And so thank you for all of your time. And to the listeners, if you guys have any thoughts, follow-up questions, feel free to reach out. I will throw together some of these resources in a show note for you and um, so that you can download it as you need. And thank you, everybody, for today. I hope you all have a great week. Thank you for listening to More Than Special. Be sure to tune in again for another program featuring your host, Jermaine Sufert, next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for being a part of the show. 